This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Father Ian Dellinger, and I'm playing with food. Everyone loves mushrooms. Except me. I don't like mushrooms. But so many people do that playing with food couldn't possibly pass up an opportunity to discover what's going on in the Central Coast mushroom scene. When I think of local mushrooms, I think of foraging. So I went to Fiscalini Ranch with Dennis Sheridan, veteran forager. Unfortunately, California hasn't seen much rain, so there wasn't an abundance of mushrooms, but we still had a good time. We're here on the Fiscalini Ranch. We're looking for mushrooms. Are you an avid mushroom forager? Yes. I've been interested in identifying them and occasionally eating them for more than 40 years. And here on the Fiscalini Ranch, what percentage of the mushrooms are edible and what percentage are poisonous? As few as 5% could be poisonous. And it's likely that depending on what your palate is, it could be 15 or 20% that are edible, which leaves a lot in the middle <laughs> that we don't talk about being edible or not. What's in that middle? Just oh. stuff that doesn't taste good? The one that I just pointed out, this cryptic globe fungus. It's a beautiful or an unusual mushroom that has an unusual story to tell about it, and it's working with a beetle to make these spores spread around. So each one has a different story. And so I would never think about eating that but I like knowing about it, thinking about it, enjoying okay. it. Well, uh, what's the best way to start foraging? Ah, get here on a cool day early after a rain. <laughs> Many of these fungi will be either mycorrhizal, that's a nice word, or saprophytic, meaning they decay a rotten log, they make it rot. Or there are other categories as well. But it hasn't rained in six weeks, <laughs> or I don't know how long. So I just look at an open meadowy-ish kind of area, in particular the interface with down or dead wood or logs, to see if there's something that jumps out at me. And right now I'm not seeing anything other than beauty. This is a good example of the interface that I said I like to look between. And the mycorrhizal relationships that are going on here are definitely putting up lots of mushrooms, but just not in the last six weeks. I think this is a carcass of a mushroom that's just old and dead and dried. Would you be looking in the same places if you were looking for mushrooms that you wanted to eat? Um, yes, both are the same. Okay. I look for mushrooms not exclusively or to or not to eat them. I look at them to see them, admire them, understand them, photograph them, enjoy them. If there are some that I do like to eat, I do take some mushrooms for the table. But that's not my main goal at all. It's okay. like down on the list. The Fiscalini Ranch has posted no collecting mushrooms on this property unless it's for educational purposes. So we won't be taking any mushrooms home today? Unless it's for educational purposes. I might be tricking myself, but I think I see a mushroom. Do you want to stand here until you see it? Okay. You said to look at the interface. Yeah. Right? So looking at the base at of trees. Base of or trees. Logs or branches or. Um, I don't see it yet. It's probably going to be super obvious. I'll get you warmer and warmer as okay. we go. Oh, I see the whole cluster. Look at that. Those are beautiful. So this is a large and a group clustering mushrooms, the giant laughing gym, Gymnophilus spectabilis. It's not good to eat, it doesn't taste good, and it has some qualities that if eaten, it makes you laugh uncontrollably. 
that's not a good thing because you might be poisoning yourself simultaneously. But this is a very, very, very old clump. It's dead and dried and is beginning to rot away. Here's some. Oh, yay, yay, yay. Now, right, right there at this interface between the grassland to hard, hard-packed soil, and this one, if I can find a young enough one, none of them look young. No. But uh, the youngest one might be this one. Mm -hmm. When I look underneath it, I'm hoping to see amethyst-colored gills. Yeah, this is doing it. Oh, wow. Look at that. It's very cool. I like that color. I think we've been pretty successful today. Uh, yeah. Considering that we haven't had rain for six, seven, eight weeks. And we're only seeing dead mushrooms. More evidence of dead mushrooms, or meaning way past oh, ripeness. Look. One, two, three, four. We're in the right spot. Just not at the right time. It's a mushroom graveyard. We should have been here two weeks ago. Oh, our first one. Wow. Those are the ones that we found all dead in just the shells of them. This is the iconic mushroom from these forests called Amanita mascara or the fly agaric. It's a beautiful mushroom. So a little luck there at the end, but because of the lack of rain and Fiscalini's rules, it wasn't the forest-to-table experience I was hoping for. Several entrepreneurs on the Central Coast, though, have worked around the mushroom moisture misfortune. I visited two home growers of mushrooms, believe it or not, on a sizable lot out by the San Luis Obispo Country Club and at the end of a cul-de-sac in Morro Bay. You won't see vast fields of mushrooms, but the mushrooms are there. I am Christoph O'Brien, and I am the owner of Mushroom Munch, based here in uh, San Luis Obispo. Grow facility is a 100-year-old redwood barn, and we have a grow tent inside of it. It's basically a greenhouse. Okay, great. Can you show me around? Sure, yeah. Let's head inside. Okay, and it is a barn. Yes, definitely a barn. So we've got a tractor in here, as you can see, and hay. But yeah, so over here we have our gauges, which read the temperature and the humidity. I like to check those as soon as I get inside so I know what's going on. At the moment, it's 57 in the tent, 87% humidity in the tent as well. I believe the tent is 8 or 9 by 10. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, it looks like a bunch of actual, like, ripe cheese. Ripe cheese. Yeah, these are the bread, the blocks. So this is the grow room. So you see we got some blue oysters going over here, a lot of freshies, all the shiitake in the back, and lion's mane, of course, on this side. So these are the popular ones that everyone loves and I can't grow enough of. They just fly off. I can sell them all before he even gets to the market. It's amazing. The grow blocks are essentially hardwood substrates uh, mixed in with some supplementation, uh, rye grain and oyster sawdust, uh, oyster shell, of course. That is then inoculated with whatever strain we are using at the time, uh, whether it be lion's mane, oyster, shiitake, and we do do chestnuts as well. They're growing off the block, so the mycelium is the part that is inside the bag and it's taking over and consuming the inside of the block, all the substrate and nutri nutrients in there. My business partner, who is in Oregon, sells me the blocks. Uh, he has a whole sterilization facility up there, so I go up about once a month to Oregon bring uh, my blocks down and yeah, set them up in the greenhouse and try to get as much uh, control of the environment for them to get their perfect fruiting. Yeah, it's all natural light in the barn. So yeah, very low tech in that sense. Um, no heating, it's all, you know, from the outside temperature. 
the temperature and humidity is all from the um, humidifier and the misting system. The blocks usually get about two to three flushes. We call them fruitings as well. Okay. So the first fruit, of course, is going to be the biggest, uh, usually about a pound in size, but it can vary, you know, depending on the climate that we have. Mushrooms love, of course, humidity, and uh, since I'm such a low-tech facility, uh, I depend a lot on the, you know, outside climate as well. So they can last up to two months, you know, if we're going to get a second fruiting at least. After they're done, they're great for compost. The neighbors next door, they actually have a, a soil tilling, and they use it for the garden. And will they sometimes get mushrooms that grow up? They, they do, yes. And are they still edible for them? Absolutely, yeah. They might be more susceptible to bugs, like any wild mushroom that you'd find out in uh, nature. How do you know when they're ready or ripe? Uh, mostly just by the looks of it. So as you can see with the uh, blue oyster, once they're small like that, they have that nice you know, small cap. Um, a lot of color to the uh, mushroom as well. Once they get bigger and fannier, they have more of a gray, but still a bluish tint to them. But these right here, we can probably pick them today if you'd like. The lion's mane, the way we like to pick them is when it gets these little tooth combs. Mm -hmm. These tooth, the teeth that hang off and looks more shaggy, more like a lion's mane and hairy. A lot of people like that factor too. They like that it looks the way it does, you know. Ooh, this looks pretty gnarly, actually. Yeah, the shiitake blocks uh, we take out of the bag and they just grow straight on the shelf like that. How did you get into this? I had a teacher at college, at Cuesta. He was our biology teacher and he would take us foraging in the Los Osos Oaks Preserve and we just find all kinds of mushrooms and that's kind of what kicked off my, you know, obsession. A lot of people like the cooking factor, you know, how do we cook it, how do we eat it? And basically what most of the, um, you know, mushroom people out there say is cook your mushrooms. Don't eat them raw, especially the best way to get the nutrients out of them is to cook them. Because they have hard cell walls called cytokines that need to be broken down to release those medicinal benefits, which is like the beta-glucans and, you know, depending on the variety, whatever medicinal compound is in there. And what made you choose these four varieties of mushrooms? They just seem very popular. I do do different varieties as well during the warmer months. So I do the golden oyster and salmon oyster. This process is where we're going to create our own growing medium. This is some shredded wood and I want to shred it even finer. So that way we can have a quicker inoculation when the, I get the um, spawn. And then do a lime pasteurization, which is we add water and hydrated lime, let that soak. That process then creates the pH so high that it kills all bacteria and any kind of contaminants in there. So it's then ready to be inoculated with the variety. I'm gonna go ahead and get the weed eater started. Uh-oh. Okay. I know, watch out. Oh wait, safety first. So that's pretty fine. So you, you, you had the hay in a 55 gallon garbage can yeah and you use the weed eater like an immersion blender pretty much okay. yeah <laughs> that's the gist of it and that means you won't have to drive up to oregon for certain varieties i still have to do that for the hardwood substrate varieties are there any native california species of mushrooms that are edible absolutely yeah i've uh, found lion's mane found oysters of course Everyone loves the California chanterelles. Those are good ones to eat, but can't cultivate those, unfortunately, just like a truffle. <laughs>
didn't know that. Why, yeah. Why can't you cultivate them? They need to be grown on oak trees that are mature. When a baby oak is, you know, growing, the mushroom and the tree will coexist and grow alongside each other and help each other proliferate. I love when I find one that's as big as my head. It's like when you find one that big, you're just kind of astounded. It's like how big the mushrooms can get on the wild. It just really depends on, you know, the factors going on with the climate and the nutrition. Will something the size of your head be edible? Absolutely, yeah. It was a lion's mane that I actually oh. found. I wish I would have weighed it. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up preserving some of it. I ate some of it as well, but it was just so much mushroom I couldn't eat it all. <laughs> So just dried it out and like kind of do at the market. I have a dried variety as well that people like to eat. What they'll do is they'll rehydrate them or put them in ramen, broth, soups, stews. Pasta dishes are great for dried mushrooms as well. Christoph offered some great cooking tips, perfect for playing with food. And it would have been amazing if Dennis and I would have stumbled across a mushroom the size of my head. Over in Morro Bay, the process is similar yet different. You will hear Highway 1 traffic on and off because the cul-de-sac is right next to the highway, but that doesn't affect the quality of the mushrooms. Rosa, as you know, I grow gourmet mushrooms. This is my lab. This is where I do all my clean work. So mushrooms, each strain needs to be isolated, and every grower kind of does something different. Some growers work straight from, this is a liquid culture. So this is mycelium suspended in liquid. It lasts basically forever. And this has just a tiny bit of mycelium floating around and you can squirt this directly into a sterilized substrate. I use rye grain or you can put it on a Petri dish, which is what I use. And I grow it out on the Petri dish. And once these are fully colonized, so this is just the mycelium for black oyster mushroom. It's nice and clean. You can tell because it's all white. It's just one variety. This one is a contaminated one. So you can get an idea. See, that's not oh, what we want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it happens though. So that's why we work in here. This is a flow hood that blows 99% clean air over the work area. Uh, Once these grow out, we use some of this and we put it in this, which has been sterilized uh, in a pressure cooker. What is it? It is rye grain, it's organic rye grain. So I soak it to hydrate it and then I bag it and I cook it at a really high temperature to avoid any possible contaminants or competitors. So when we put this in, if we've done our job right, then it will grow out and colonize like this. Oh, wow. Yeah, isn't that neat? It's already even trying to fruit in there. This is definitely ready to expand. So this will go into a substrate of mostly wood, and it'll grow us mushrooms over time. The whole process takes about three months. Okay, so you've taken mycelium, the liquid cultures, you put them in a petri dish, and then you put it in the rye grain in a gallon plastic bag. It gets all furry, white and furry. Yeah, it's the mycelium basically consuming the rye grain. It's like eating it Okay, and, and expanding. And then you're going to go put it on the substrate? Yeah. Is that what's next door? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll show you. Okay, I'll cool. You. I'm pretty basic. I do a really low-cost, low-tech method, and I use a cement mixer to mix my substrate. And we put it in that tray there, and we bag it from there. And once it's bagged, it goes into incubation. They come in here after we've bagged them. Basically, the grain delivers the mycelium to the substrate and eventually it will fill out completely like this. It looks like giant sausages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> partic- salumeria. Yeah. yeah. Particularly the, 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 that they're white. It, so it looks like the, it is mold that grows on the outside of the salami. So this looks exactly like a giant salami. It does. Yeah. <laughs> it does. Each one of these grains will deliver the mycelium that we're trying to expand and it'll slowly colonize this whole bag. So like these were just done on the 9th, 
So they're just lightly grown out. And these were done January 23rd, and they're almost fully colonized. And you've poked holes in them. Because the mycelium needs to breathe. It breathes right. oxygen, just like we do. That's why fungus has its own kingdom, because they're not a plant. Right. They don't do the carbon dioxide thing. They breathe oxygen like we do. So where do these sausages go next? I'll show you. OK. Sorry, my chickens are out. <laughs> so when they're ready, we bring them out here. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, 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 wow. So we're in a greenhouse, just like an off-the-shelf greenhouse. The sausages have been brought in here, <laughs> and they have mushrooms growing out of them. Lots. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. I don't know what else to say, but wow. So this is three months later. Yeah, this is about three months later, starting from the Petri dish all the way to fruiting. And these will fruit several times. These, for example, see they already have some algae growing on them just because it's a high moisture environment. It doesn't hurt anything. These are, they're, they're almost done. They're getting really close to being done. They're very light now. The mushrooms have consumed a lot of the nutrients. And then that's what we use to compost. And you only do these types of mushrooms? Oysters is definitely my specialty. They like this method a lot. When I first started growing, I was feeling super ambitious and tried all kinds of varieties, a lot of medicinals, and they're just unfortunately very slow growing. And you know, at the end of the day, it's a business. So I have to keep that in mind. I need to produce something that pays me back. And these guys pay dividends. They do great. They love this environment. They're delicious. People love them. Is this your primary business? This is my primary business. I work from home and, you know, get to be with my daughter full time. She was the inspiration behind starting this. I started in 2018. I had a much smaller operation at my old property. Definitely moving here gave me the opportunity to double up. So I started just with one large greenhouse at my old place. And then when I got here, I split that into two and have since added two more greenhouses and the permanent structures for incubation in the lab. This is definitely an unconventional way of growing them. And when I started growing, I wasn't sure it would work. But I had decided that if I couldn't do it this way, that I wasn't going to do it because it seemed like what I would have to put in versus what I got out was it too imbalanced? Because a lot of it is to leave no impact. You know, I don't want to use as much plastic as some of the other growers or as much energy. They, you know, they'll deem sterilize their substrate. I just do a pasteurization process. You can see this method, but typically they'll do it on straw, which I really didn't want to work with. It's very messy, gets in your clothes, it's painful. Like I did not want to deal with that. So I did a lot of experimentation and it just, this worked. So I stuck with it, which is kind of also how I've specialized down to oysters because they like this particular method. Some of the other slower growing mushrooms don't do so well. They need more supplementation and the higher supplementation, the higher you risk contamination, which you know you don't get mushrooms because you have too many competitors in your substrate. This works, yeah. Rosa taught me how to harvest and that was fun. Both her business and Christoph's were amazing. Growing mushrooms looks easy, but the biology behind it is very important. Despite Rosa saying that her method is unconventional, there are no shortcuts when dealing with a living organism. Anytime you hear contamination or sterilization over and over again, that's your clue to realize that the process is a bit meticulous. The main difference between Christoph and Rosa's growing methods, from my novice observations, is the type of substrate and the sterilization method. Christoph has more solid blocks sterilized by his friend in Oregon, and by the way, he also grows mushrooms straight on logs, Rosa pasteurizes her own grain, then she puts it in bags, which then look like giant salami. Both methods offer them thriving mushroom businesses. The next time you're out for a walk in the woods, preferably a couple weeks after a rain, look down on the ground and notice the food that nature provides. Of course, be careful if you're foraging. 
know what you're picking before you attempt to eat it. Next time you're at the farmer's market checking out the mushroom stalls, know that those growers are all fungis. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian, and I'm playing with food.